0: This past Thursday, I had the pleasure of sitting in on one of our discovery groups as about 15 people shared their own spiritual journey of how they came to Christ. And hearing how God has worked in these different lives is truly one of the greatest pleasures I have as a pastor to hear people share that. It really is a cool thing to hear. Uh, Whether it was forming your own faith out of a religious home kind of owning it for yourselves. Some talked about that. Or maybe breaking away from a religious system that it did not embrace the gospel. Or maybe actually going through a period of, of serious doubt or agnosticism, God was wooing people to himself. And it's just so exciting to hear each and every one of those stories. You know, as I think about it, every one of us have a story like that, that, that know the Lord. And there is no boring story. You don't need to you know, have been on cocaine and murdered somebody in order to have a dramatic uh, conversion experience. Because in that moment that God transforms you, it is a divine work. It is a heavenly transaction. And no matter what your story is, I want to encourage you to share it. Because it's a framework that surrounds a a beautiful portrait of the gospel. And uh, you can use, in fact, this week in your life groups as an opportunity to share how you came to know Christ, that could be a a good start to kind of hone that story. We have embarked on the first eight chapters of Acts, and if you're unaware, our normal fare is to go through a a book of the Bible verse by verse. We are in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9, and it's a story of how Saul, later to be known as Paul, was transformed from a Christ-hater to a Christ-lover. Now there were four encounters that were critical to Paul's transformation here in the first 31 verses of Acts 9. But the first one was when he met Christ, second one was when he met Ananias, third one was when he met some opposition, and the fourth was when he met believers from Jerusalem. He met those from the body of Christ. His conversion experience apparently was so important to the narrative in Acts that's told and retold three different times throughout the same book. Now, of course, if you've been with us, you know that Acts 9 is not the first time we've heard from Saul. He was there when Stephen was martyred. Stephen was killed, and Saul was kind of acting as a cooperative observer, We know from putting pieces of history together and reading other passages that Saul is from Tarsus. He was a Hebrew, but he was also immersed in Greek culture and philosophy. At an early age, he studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the the leading intellectuals of, of Judaism. He had distinguished himself, Saul did, as a scholar and as a natural leader. He became a member of the strict Jewish sect that we know as the Pharisees, and they were committed to return Israel to a a spotless obedience to the law and to Jewish traditions. He was from Tarsus, and we know that Tarsus was one of the three leading universities besides Athens and Alexandria in all the world. They had one of the universities there in Tarsus. He spoke fluent Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So he's deeply religious and yet adept in the thought, modern thinking of of the day. And so he was a unique candidate to take the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. But there's only one problem. Is that up to this point, Saul was tracking down Christians to jail them or kill them. What he didn't know is that the Lord was tracking him. And guess who wins? We read about it here in Acts 9. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. But Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. of Tarsus, named Saul, for behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, the "Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." But the Lord said to him, "Go." From his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed, and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And as he and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Father, we come acknowledging that we have a need for your word, to not only hear it, but to let it sink into our hearts, our minds, to change our minds about some things, to align our perspective, our thoughts with a biblical worldview. I pray that you would do that and that you would transform our hearts. Lord, we're not just here to feel good. We're here to be changed. And we know that that only takes place by your spirit, not by the ingenuity of any person. And so we welcome your spirit into our hearts and into this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting to see that there was an erroneous theology, a misguided religion, that propagated the notion of persecuting Christians. It's also interesting that two other times we read in this book of Acts that women were not exempt from persecution. Uh, In fact, they were targeted as well as men. It's kind of an unusual thing because it, it shows how relentless the persecution was by Paul. You wonder how a guy could get in the position that Paul was at we'll call him Saul, Paul, same guy. If you want anyone could have asked Saul, why why is it that you're doing what you're doing? Perhaps he might say something like this. He said Jesus is dead. I could never believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah. In fact, our law tells us that those who hang on a tree are cursed. Would God take a cursed, false prophet and make him a Messiah? I think not. His followers are misleading everyone by saying he's alive and that he's doing miracles through them. If Jesus has any power, it's the power of Satan, not God. This is a dangerous cult, and I'm going to eliminate it before it destroys our Jewish faith. That's, I think, what Saul had in his head and heart. Despite his education and one of the best ever that he could have at that time, he was blind, spiritually blind. Because you see, the the cross was foolishness to him. Isn't it interesting that later he would write in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles many self-righteous people today do not see their need of Christ they resent the idea of having to admit the guilt of their sin and religion can kind of embrace that idea and in that sense I think religion can do a great evil I'm not talking about you know all those other religions. How about stripes within Christianity itself? After his conversion, in fact, Paul would be a recipient of scourging, guess by who? The synagogues, the Jews, the, one, the ones that he is now thinking he's defending. But later, they would beat him at least five different times. It says in our passage that he goes to the high priest, that's probably Caiaphas, and he wants basically extradition papers to take Christians back to Jerusalem that he would find in the synagogues of Damascus. There was estimated to be anywhere from 10 to 15 to some said 18,000 Jews in Damascus. Now since Saul was a student of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was so esteemed by the Jewish authorities, he would be granted permission by the high priest. Now, Damascus was also about 150 miles from Jerusalem, and it was under the rule of a king by the name of Eretus. And Eretus was a part of a people called the Nabataeans. They were fierce rivals of Rome. They had wars with Rome. And Eretus was all too eager to comply with Jewish leadership and gain an ally against Rome. And so it really was not an issue for Saul to get these papers and to see other Christians be jailed. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Saul was nearing Damascus, and a light shines from heaven. We're told in Acts 26, one of the other narratives that explain this event, that he was traveling in the middle of the day. So the sun is bright and yet there's something that is eminently brighter. The expression of divine glory. The Old Testament would call it the Shekinah glory of God. And this caused blindness upon Saul. We're then told that Saul fell to the ground. Acts 26 also tells us that when The other men fell to the ground. They could not make out the voice. Saul could hear it. They knew somebody was speaking, but they couldn't make it out. Only Saul could make it out, what he was saying. They hit the ground. To me, that's just odd. It's odd that people that go with the intent of killing Christians in an instant they find themselves on the ground. Maybe they all realized who it was they were dealing with. Remember the episode of when the Jewish officials came to take Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane? And they were headed to crucify him, right? They come up on Jesus and they say, are you Jesus? And he says, I'm he. We pick it up in John eighteen six 6, what it says. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back, And fell to the ground. They came to arrest and crucify him, but they fall to the ground. These are kind of earthly manifestations of the authority and the power of God. And let us recognize that even though there are those who protest against God, who protest against the gospel, every person will one day bow before him and acknowledge his lordship. We read in Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul wrote this as well. I wonder if he was thinking about what happened on the Damascus road when he wrote these words. So that the name of every na- uh, of Jesus, every, name should, uh, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, that's for emphasis. And Christ's question is, why are you persecuting me? It demonstrates the union that, that Christ has with his church. The Lord didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? the reference to me shows that all believers are in union with Christ, are one in Christ. Inseparable, Christ is, from his people. He's bound together with his body to the extent that every blow struck upon his children is felt by him. You ever had your children attacked? And know what that's like? It's like you get attacked. We had once one of our kids, and this was way back, almost 30 years ago. Some neighbor boys got one of our children down and beat the living daylights out of him. And he came home and had bruises all over his face. Now, I'm not recommending you do this. But I got to tell you, something went off in me at that point, and I'm just glad at the time I wasn't packing heat, because I was upset, and I knew who the boys were, and I went down, and there was a guy, a dad, sitting in his pickup truck with his beer, uh, his beer in hand, and I was pointing in his face, and I said, don't you ever let your kids come into my yard again. You got that? I mean, I was <laughs> PO'd, all right? <laughs> and the dad goes okay <laughs> i'm not proud of that moment but i'm telling you when my son was beat i felt it i felt it is one of mine we serve a savior who empathizes with our pain Saul asked, who are you, Lord? He then heard, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Ironically, Saul had unwittingly been doing exactly what his former teacher, Gamaliel, warned against doing when some apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. And it says there, so in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And that's exactly where Saul found himself, opposing God. And again, religious movements can do this, how sad it is. Oppose the Old Testament, oppose the New Testament, oppose the gospel. Oppose God. We know from Acts 22 and 26, again, that the other men could hear the sound but not make it out. And Jesus tells him to go into the city and that further instruction would be given to him. Now, up to this point, Saul thought that one of the worst aspects of the blasphemy from Christians is that they go around saying that Jesus was alive. And here, in a matter like that quick, Saul is convinced that Jesus is alive. He went from putting Christians to a position of servitude in a prison to now himself being a slave to God, a slave to the will of God. In fact, he would later write in 1 Corinthians 7.22, likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. He calls himself a bondservant or slave in Galatians 1.10 and Philippians 1.1. A slave, his will is subservient to his master. In the case of the Christian, we have a master that we serve in Jesus Christ who is our Lord. Basically, all the Christian's problems in their walk can be attributed to not recognizing that one fact because they see themselves as the king, as the lord of their own life, and they're unwilling to humble themselves before a holy God and honor him as such. But here we have Saul changing his mind now. Changing his mind about who Jesus is. This is the ultimate kind of conversion. Changing his mind who Jesus is. He would change his mind about Jesus being alive. He would change his mind about now who is calling the shots. He would change his mind about Jesus being the Messiah. He would change his mind about who he is serving. He would change his mind about his own righteousness. And now he's faced with the reality of his own sin, his true self. That's all a part of true conversion. It's a a mind thing. It's a heart thing. It's a will thing. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voices but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. He was a broken man. Helpless. Blinded. Powerless. Now has to be led by the hand by others. He would not eat or drink for three days. This was a man who was going through shock in his conversion. Changing his worldview, Breaking his will. The the raging persecutor has been reduced to shambles in facing the reality of his sin. I mean, for three days, he was blinded. It's as if he's forced to see only himself, only what is in his heart, the reality of his sin. And his sin laid heavy upon him. We'd probably all agree much was needed to kind of grind down that self-righteousness as a Pharisee. He was an implacable foe of the gospel. But it was conquered. And now he sees himself as the chief of sinners. Supernatural. Transformative. Larry Nasser, the former Michigan State University and USJ gymnastics doctor, has pleaded guilty to sexual assault and for possession of child pornography. He this past week complained to a Michigan courtroom that listening to four days of victim impact statements was, and I quote, detrimental to his mental health. You see, sin and guilt are concepts the world does not know how to fit within its view, especially if there's no God, especially if there's no moral order. Where does sin and guilt fit without a moral order? Saul faced forced to see. His sin, his heart, his true self. You know, with salvation there's always confession and repentance before there's forgiveness. And for many, there's a time of this great brokenness. Ever gone through a time like that? Maybe it wasn't seen a light. But maybe it was just being so overcome by your sin that you don't know if you can face it. You, you can't even verbalize it because you feel so much shame. I've been there. And yet, if that leads us to repentance, it's okay to go through that. If we wallow in that, that's not a good thing. There's life after the repentance. There's grace. There's communion. For confession and repentance to happen, we have to face the guilt of our sin. And by the way, that was always the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. And here we see that Jesus basically crushed Saul with the guilt of his sin. But the law itself could not kindle faith within Saul. In fact, there's a lot of discussion within some of the commentators about when was the exact moment that Saul came to faith. Some say it was immediately when he saw this vision. Others say it was when the scales came off. Some say it was when Ananias, later in the story, would, would lay hands upon him. We really don't know for sure. But it's obvious that this whole episode elicits Saul's faith in the gospel. And it's not until the the gospel enters the heart that a person is truly converted. It's not from religion. It's not from walking an aisle. It's not from signing some card. It's not from raising your hand. But it's when a, a transaction takes place within your heart that you affirm the truth of the gospel. You admit your sin before a holy God. And you acknowledge that Christ alone is the one that allows us to have this redemption with God because of what he's done on the cross. That is the moment that the transformation takes place. In Acts 26, 19, Paul said pointedly that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, which implies that he could have rejected the gospel. When a person refuses to acknowledge the truth of their sin and the truth of the gospel, it seems clear that that is wholly on them, that they're going to be held accountable, responsible. It's their fault. What Jesus said in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have Gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You had a choice and you were not willing. Acts 7.51. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. It's interesting to hear others try to explain what took place with Saul on the Damascus Road. I'm always amused, particularly those who take more of a, a naturalistic worldview and try to explain everything with material causes. Ernest Renault, the French atheist and philosopher, said it was a, an uneasy consciousness with unstrung nerves, fatigue from the journey, eyes inflamed by the hot sun, sudden stroke of fever that produced these hallucinations on the part of Saul. Dr. John Durr, an American earthquake expert, said that Paul could have been struck by a bolt of electromagnetic energy released by an earthquake. Joseph Klausner wrote a book on the Apostle Paul and attributed this incident to epilepsy. There is an aversion, my friends, to the plain meaning of Scripture. Now, it's not that the Scripture doesn't use metaphor or allegory, it does. But the plain meaning of Scripture to many people is just too much to handle because too much is on the line. I mean, taking Paul's conversion at face value is very threatening because... There's a bunch of supernatural activity, and there's an acknowledgement of his sin. And who wants to confront their own sin? Maybe we'd do better to actually take a first person account from Saul himself. Because he would give an explanation later in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. You could also see another one in Philippians 3. I won't read that today. But he says this in 1 Timothy. came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, maybe you ought to memorize that last verse because every time... You share your story of God's grace in your life. You could say, to the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It's His work. Amen. What we see is that when God confronts the human being, that produces a conviction of sin. It produces the reality of maybe previously rejecting Christ. The fact is, as human beings, we'd much rather shift the blame to somebody else. We might blame the Bible because it's not this or that. We blame a church or a church experience we've had. We might blame our parents. Parents might make excuses for their own children who are in bondage to sin. But listen, there is no transformation without facing the sin and acknowledging it. And then, then comes a new heavenly master, a new life. I can only encourage you that if you're considering choosing Christ, do not delay. And if you've chosen Christ, and maybe you are impacted right now with sin in such a way that there's great shame, there is a way out of that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a story that Satan called a meeting meeting with his senior demons It was basically a strategy session to devise ways to keep people from trusting Jesus for salvation. First up was the boss. Gave a clever presentation explaining the dilemma. There's been too many leaving the fold of darkness. They've been choosing to follow the light. We can't have this. And when he opened the meeting for discussion, He asked the demons to suggest concrete ways that they could choke off these conversions in some effective way. The first volunteer proposed, why don't we tell them that there's no God? And that suggestion fell on deaf ears, for the demons knew well that those who were going to be intellectually honest could only hold on to that ludicrous idea for a short bit, and that hasn't always worked. The second speaker thought he had a better idea. said, tell them that the Bible is not true. And this provoked several minutes of discussion because that tactic has been used to some success through the years. So they thought about elevating it as a long-term strategy. That seemed to incur some favor. But they, they tabled that idea for a moment because the chairman heard a third suggestion and it immediately brought a diabolic smile on everyone in the room. Tell them the gospel is true. Tell them that they need to be saved, but tell them not now. See, some might believe that there's no God. A greater number might reject the authority of the Scripture, but a delaying tactic causing well-meaning people to procrastinate on the gospel, to put off turning to Jesus until too late. This could work with untold millions. And as the story goes, the demons approved suggestion three, and the chairman declared the meeting adjourned. Now, Obviously, that's a fictitious story. But we certainly see Satan's legions Utilizing all three of these methods to keep people in darkness. If you're one of those waiting, today, the Bible says, could be your day of salvation by acknowledging your sin before a holy God, by coming to terms with faith in the gospel. If you've made that decision previously, but you're racked with the guilt of your sin, I want you to know that there is forgiveness available. You know, God loves you far more than you love yourself. And he wants your conscience to be clean and your life to be free of that far more than you do. And his grace is greater than any of our sin. Allow God to use your story to open eyes, to transform hearts. Pray with me, will you?